Good morning, and thank you for attending. This will be our last talk this year. All right. We're going to do something different today. Bob, Dr. Barkin is going to be down there because we're going to want to have a lot of audience participation. We're going to be talking about no disclosures, learning objectives, but here's what we're going to be talking about. Okay, I'm going to be up here. I'm going to call it out for Dr. Barkin will have the first statement or say, and then I'll add some things possibly. And then every time we're going to ask the audience if there's any comments, anything that you want to add. This is really for everybody to participate. What we're talking about are the things that we all need to be cognizant about in dealing with any type of pain patient, inpatient or outpatient. Okay, and that goes for headache patients too. So let's get started and talk first about the right patient. Dr. Barkin, sir. I can th think of three instances where the right patient was a major issue. First one is that the short white coats and the long white coats on the orthopedic unit were visiting two patients. Patients both had the same last name and they both had the same first initial and they were born in the same year, not month or day. Uh, needless to say, there was some chaos that went wrong. One had a hip, one had a knee, one was prescribed this, one was prescribed that. They finally figured it out in the end when they ordered an INR on a patient that wasn't on Coumadin, and the tech called them up and said, you know, Warfarin, why are you ordering an INR? They're not on. Oh, okay, and then the whole thing was discovered. Second right patient occurred when the resident was sitting at their electronic medical record and putting in orders or whatever she was doing or he was doing, and then she got paged, or he got paged, and they left to leave that area, and, they came, and while they were gone, someone else sat in the chair, redid it, happened to open up to an order sheet. The doctor came back, sat in the chair, put the orders in for the wrong patient, not looking at anything else but looking at the screen. And how many of you use electronic medical records? Okay, it's easy to do that. <laughs> That's not hard. Another one, patient goes into the pharmacy to ask for their medication, and there are two patients with the same last name, and they took out the little paper bag and gave it to the patient, didn't open it, didn't go over any counseling. After all, it was, it's not the pharmacist there, and the tech was busy, and handed, handed it off to the patient. The wrong patient got the wrong meds. That's three. Anybody else want to add something to that? Okay, Dr. J. Thank you. A couple of points. Um, one of the things I've always done in the practice uh, is I always have my office overlooking the parking lot so I can see the patients walking into the building. And it's amazing the changes you see when you do that and then perform a neurological exam, including gait. Well, this one day, saw a patient coming in to actually patient and her significant other, or his significant other. And so I'm seeing the man, his girlfriend or whatever, is in the waiting room. And it took me about five minutes asking questions to realize that he was not the patient. He was there trying to get drugs for his girlfriend. And when you looked at the PMPD, you could see why, because she was a doctor shopper and she had a ton of medication. But this gentleman 
presented as the patient. He was not able to answer questions appropriately in terms of really checking what's going on. And a very similar thing happened with an outpatient whose twin sister came in. And it was the twin sister pretending to be the sister that was ill, wanting their meds. So the right patient, sometimes patients try to pull one over on you. They will try to do a favor for a friend or a family member or someone and present as the patient. And their PDMP is clean. Everything's great. And that's one of the keys. When you check the PDMP, and if the patient has that much pain for that long, there should have been something there. So another point to think about. Anybody else have any comments on any wonderful and strange things you've seen patients do? Remember, this is participatory. We don't sit there with the iPad now and the cell phone reading your email from old Larry Curley and Shemp. We want you to raise your hand and contribute because we're going to, okay, there's one over there, Gary. I'll be over there. Wait, I'll come over with the mic. Okay, here, geez, Dr. Barkin's coming with the mic. No voice no, projection here, know. unless you're going into opera. You don't even okay. need a soapbox to stand on. Yeah. Okay. There you go. All right. Fancy microphone. So I have actually had patients cross state lines, and mm-hmm. therefore if I pull a PDMP, but they're from Pennsylvania or they're not from Florida, I can't check that they're being honest with me. Yep. Um, I've also had a junior and a senior, both with chronic pain, in the same office, on two different forms of treatment for pain, so it's a little bit of a risk when writing the blue script to get make sure it goes to the correct patient. Right. It's another lecture, but all of you should know the Waddell signs, which are on physical examination, things you can do to elicit what should be, uh, what would be inappropriate responses to examination. The Waddell signs are really good, and it's something you should read on. So next, patient, uh, the right diagnosis. This is rather important, Dr. Barkin. Well, the, the one that I can recall the, the, that's most colorful in my mind is the patient that has been going to a, uh, her primary care doc with uh, complaints of hip pain. And she received everything. I mean, epidurals, excuse me, steroid injections, SIJ injections, physical therapy, occupational therapy, massage, guided imagery, who knows, TENS unit. Turns out it was a sacral issue, and what she needed more likely than not was an epidural steroid injection at that, at that, at that mark. And so it has been going on for years, years and years of suffering like this. And finally... Uh, her daughter said to her, I think we should go somewhere else and have this looked at. And finally they did and found out it was a completely different etiology for the pain that she was getting. So it was referred from the back to the hip. Anything you want to add, Dr. Gary? Oh, wait, right here. Workman's comp patients, they usually come with their insurance for one uh, complaint, and then they use the workman's comp for another uh, complaint. Yes, uh, That's indeed. a big issue. Big issue. The problem is many of them will come with their nurse from the case, man- you know, case management nurse. And bottom line is you can't address another issue unless it is secondary to the primary issue. In other words, a patient that fell and had a brain injury, a concussion, okay, and you're seeing them for post-traumatic headache. And they also are 
depressed. Okay, and they also have muscle spasm. But it's all together. And they also may have cognitive problems. So then you can say, all right, this is all one picture of a post-concussion syndrome. And to the nurse, these are all part and parcel of the same injury. Need to get this done. But if that patient with a head injury also comes in limping because they have a uh, hip necrosis, okay, you can't touch it. That's right. You can't touch it. But let's talk about right diagnosis. Uh, Looking at headache, patients will come in. The most common headache diagnosis is what? Anybody? Migraine. Why is it the most common diagnosis? Because the definition of a migraine supposedly is um, a severe headache. So patients will say, you know, I've got a severe headache, and it's really bad. It puts me in bed just like my neighbor. And let's see. She told me that she has migraine, so I must have migraine. That and the fact that doctors make the same mistake. Patient has severe headache, puts them to bed, they've got to have a migraine. They don't look at little things. And I'll tell you one really good way of differential diagnosis. But I point out to you that a severe headache can also be a severe tension-type headache or muscle contraction headache. It can also be cluster. However... Uh, about 20% of my patient referrals are labeled cluster headache. There aren't that many of them. Okay, I have actually four cluster patients that are real. So you want to talk to the patient. Don't take their word for the diagnosis. Was this a medically created diagnosis from a doctor? Even yes, revisit the issue. One really good question that differentiates most of that migraine versus the other is if you get a headache, can you climb a flight of stairs to get to your bedroom? Can you walk a block? And the answer is with migraine, no. But if they say they can, and even if they have nausea and occasional vomiting, it can be tension type because think of the autonomic signs and symptoms of severe pain. And when they come in with a six-week headache, it's been daily for six weeks, is that a migraine? Migraine is only 4 to 72 hours, but it can turn into a chronic tension-type headache. So you want to look and really investigate when a patient comes in and says, Dr. So-and-so gave me this diagnosis, and I want you to treat it. you still got to verify that the diagnosis is real. Anybody? Here's a comment, Dr. Barkin. Oh, hold on one sec. There's the mic. In the last year or so, I've had, and this may be a problem with electronic records, but we have patients that are referred where the doctor that referred them has it in the chart that they have a certain diagnosis, and then when we try to follow up and find out whether they really do, they don't. The one was I had a a 38-ish or so uh, gentleman come in who told me that he had, it was in his record that he had multiple sclerosis and spina bifida. And, and I said, and, you know, and how was that diagnosis made? Um, I don't remember. I, you know, I had some x-rays of my back, and that's what they told me I had. They told me I had multiple sclerosis. They, I had sclerosis. I said, is it possible that you had scoliosis? Oh, maybe that's what it was. Anyway, then we ended up, he didn't have spina bifida. He had a, a bifid um, L5 spinous process. Yeah. So you know, I ordered a lot of diagnostic studies on him. He didn't, have, he didn't even have scoliosis. But... It was in in his record that that was on his diagnosis list. I don't even know how we got those things taken off those records. 
It's an excellent point you make because how many folks use Epic as their EHR? Okay, you know, obviously, that you cannot put a suspected diagnosis or rule out diagnosis. I'm going to do this test to rule out MS. You've got to put the diagnosis, MS. Even though that's not a diagnosis, you're trying to rule it out. That's why you're doing a cervical spine MRI. So lots of times you will find inappropriate diagnoses because you can't say rule out, and once you've ruled it out, you can't get rid of it. I'm, I'm a clinical social worker. Wow, this is louder than I was expecting. Um, I must have great opera abilities, hidden there opera abilities. Um, and I think the most common thing I'm seeing is, is just behavioral diagnoses carrying over with really no evidence behind them. Mm-hmm. Someone maybe was tearful in an office and is now coming in with a major depression diagnosis. Um, the most common right now I'm seeing is people being di- diagnosed with bipolar, especially yeah. bipolar 1. And we look back and... There needs to be very clear evidence of bipolar 1, and it is the most common thing that I am now ruling out bipolar, and that changes a, per- a person's whole life. Suddenly, we're off of mood-stabilizing medication. Right. Their whole treatment plan changes, um, it, and it's amazing in, in a one-hour assessment how many things need to be accomplished, at least from the behavioral side of things. A very good point, and particularly with those patients who were placed on significant mood-altering drugs like lamictal with uh, you know, compromising effects and things like that, that you don't want these patients to be on unless they really need it. So let's move ahead, Robert. Okay. Uh, the right medication. Right medications. Let me just add one thing to the right diagnosis. How many of you ever ask what, to the patient, what brings you here today? Okay, I do. And the diagnosis could have been you know, whatever. Let's just say that it's neck pain. And I said, well, tell me about your neck. Well, my shoulders hurt. My elbow does. My right hand is worse than my left hand. I have cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and sacral pain. My knee bothers me. The plantar surface of my foot bothers me. I said, wait a second. My granddaughter took her magic wand to Montessori today. I can't wave and it all go away. Let's take one at a time. Because patients want to amalgamate all their diagnoses for pain into your practice on you. We have to tell them that can't happen. So I just thought I'd add that. Right medications. Too many accidents occur because of medications. And today, many of our patients, how many of you take care of patients mostly in your practice or over the age of 55? Okay, substantial number. What are they used to? They're used to going into the pharmacy, getting their prescriptions, and some generic thing was dispensed with a different color and a different shape, and they begin to accept this as the standard norm and go home. That happened. But what actually happened, it was the wrong medication in their bottle, and it wasn't a generic equivalent. So whenever you see the patient, if you have an opportunity to talk with them, say, if the color, shape, and size of the tablet changes while you're there, you open the bottle in front of the pharmacy and say, show me where it came from, or please, is this drug so-and-so? And then very often, it's going to be fine, but there's going to be those times when it's not fine. And that, that didn't happen until after the patient was on four or five doses and their blood pressure dropped like a stone, and that's not what they were there for, is antihypertensive, uh, for antihypertensive medications. So that's, it's one thing about medications, you know, that, that sort of thing. And then there's confusion. The patient may have said ketoprofen and someone put down ketorolac. 
Sure, they're both NSAIDs, but they're completely different. One can't be given IV. So they, they ordered the wrong drug, IV. So it's a little one about right meds. You have probably got a whole host of questions or comments on that. So, doctor. Um, probably one of the most interesting problems I've had with the right med for the, wrong, the right patient with the wrong med was the right med, but here's the problem. Going back 15 years ago, I was uh, in Florida. I, I was work, and The reason this is pertinent, I'll tell you in a moment, is part of the story. Uh, I was in Florida. I was the president of the Florida Academy of Pain Medicine. And, I had, and that year, Medicaid in Florida said we will only use methadone and MS cotton for prolonged Medicaid, oh, ER or extended release medica pain medications. So I had two patients who were both young women, exactly the same size, same weight. And one weekend after they were both placed on it for about three weeks, I get two calls the same weekend from two different ERs. They were both there seemingly in narcotic withdrawal. Okay, And these patients had had no issues with drug misuse or drug abuse. Certainly nothing with addiction. So when I talk to them, this is what I would like you to do, so on, please do it. And I'll see the patient next week, which I did. And they were taking the drugs correctly and everything was fine. And this is a good learning experience for me anyway, because two weeks later, the same weekend, I get two calls from two EDs. Both women were back looking like they were in addiction. Uh, excuse me, like they were in withdrawal. At that point, I finally used my brain and said, fine, would you please look at um, morphine-3-glucuronide? Okay. What are the breakdown? The two main metabolites of morphine, morphine-3 and morphine-6-glucuronide. Morphine-6 is anti-nociceptive. Morphine-3, if a patient can't metabolize it, goes up, you go into withdrawal. So both of them had enormous amounts of morphine-3-glucuronide, which meant that I had to take them off the methadone and put them on the, uh, I'm sorry, take them off morphine, put them on methadone, and it took 11 months. That was the reason I was saying what my position was, because I had to get people from the Florida Medical Board, the Florida uh, Pharmacy Board, to go to the Medicaid people and say, you can't do this because here's two patients. I'm sure there's more out there. So you need, the, the bottom line is, you need to know, as I should have known the first time, but it took me the second call, you need to know the metabolites and everything else about the drugs that you use. So it's the right drug. It was an, anti, it was an opiate that she needed, but it was the wrong drug for them because at that time nobody was doing genetic testing or SIP testing. Bob? Okay, the right dose. Uh, we, we have... Wait, People. any questions oh, on that? Uh, any questions? Or any comments, please, on drugs that you find difficult to work with patients? Okay. No? Then dose? The right dose. Very often we have people that will look at their little whatever guide they have on meds, and they'll go to the dosing, and that's the dose they pick. The dose should be a function of the patient's routes of elimination and metabolism and their age. 
So they didn't go further down to see patients over the age of 70 should only receive this amount and that you don't, don't use this drug with a creatinine clearance of less than 30 and avoid this drug with patients that have uh, liver dysfunction. None of that was looked at. They just figured I got a generic patient and I'll just go to the normal dose, one to two every four to six hours PRM. And that happened, and you ended up with a therapeutic misadventure. So doses are based on patient-specific, patient-focused, patient-centered care. And I've said in the past lectures, you have a world of generic drugs, you have no generic patient. So picking the dose has got to be the right dose for that patient, not what is stated as a dose in a package insert when you don't look further down to see the changes that can occur. Any comments? Anything that's happened to you personally? Okay, Dr. J. Just a comment that many times, uh, to add on to something Dr. Barkin said, you say to a patient, I want you to take this three times a day. And I've had patients say, all right, you know, I, t I get up at 6, so I'll take one at 6 or 6.30, and then I'll take one at uh, 8 with breakfast and one, with, one at 10 o'clock. Okay? So what you want to do when you say to a patient you want to take this three times a day is write down what that means. You want to take it every six hours. You want to take it every eight hours. Give them the times if you need to. But giving it to a patient saying you've got to take three a day, you want to be more specific. Okay. So let's move ahead. To I can just add on to that. I Please. always put down what time you get up, what time you go to bed, and do 6A, 2P, 10P, 7, 3, and 11, 9, 5, 11 by the actual hour on the clock. Right. So when they and say you can take it an hour either side. So we have to put some structure into these lives of chaos where they're taking six or eight or nine meds a day. Next thing we have is the right laboratory indices, and that is also current laboratory indices. When prescribing for patients, we have to have, uh, I'm going to say, the right indices in front of us for those to make the decision. And I just looked at it before and said, creatinine, creatinine clearance, their liver function. If you want to know if they're drinking a lot, look at the MCV and the GGT. If you're prescribing meds to prolong a QTC prolongation, you've got to have an EKG in front of you. So before you get involved and the patient comes, makes an appointment, make sure that they bring in from their primary care provider a current set that they have of laboratory indices for you to make a decision based upon their internal milieu which drug you're going to pick. Right. Any comments? Yes, sir. Hold on one second, this gentleman. Dr. Birkin? He's just walking fast. Yeah, I was going to go back to morphine long-acting. A lot of times it doesn't last 12 hours, so... We write for TID, and the insurance doesn't approve it. They say it's a BID drug. So. Right. Well, it's sort of like uh, one of the, the chief problems there. Do you remember fentanyl patches? Okay. And that's a prime thing for, I don't know, they've been gone for, they've been out for two decades. And typically it's a Q, supposed to be a Q72-hour drug, but typically after three to four months, Patients are using it and needing it Q48 hours, and that's pretty much where you stay, okay? And the issue is, as you stated, uh, there are different, and we'll talk about this with, uh, a little later with uh, generic-type drugs, but the issue is not all drugs are what they're advertised to be. 
and not all patients can metabolize or utilize the drug the way you expect them to, the way the label says it should be used. So you want to uh, put both of those pieces of information in your mind and come up with the best way of looking at it. It's a good point. Thank you. The other thing to remember on your sustained-release morphine is there's a 70-30 rule in the orange book that says a generic drug can have 70% of or 30% more than the parent compound. Also, when your patients get their sustained-release morphine, you have no idea who made them or who made them the last time. So sometimes they say, I only want the green one, and it's only going to be made by this. And I'm sure most of you have had that already. Now we have a branded uh, sustained-release morphine, which I want to see is probably more consistent. Well, Laboratory there, indices we talked about. Wait, Robert, the, Robert yes. excuse me. One point there sure. is that, uh, aside from the FDA difference in generic drugs, is the fact that when patients, uh, my rule is certain types of drugs, antidepressants, anticonvulsants particularly, and opiates, I want brand because everybody in the generic force, you know, there's pretty much generic forces unless you're using an ADF, which nobody's going to pay for, okay? Everything else is generic. And so you want to try to be, particularly with anticonvulsants, you want to I ask for brand because of the FDA-approved difference in generic drugs. Okay. Uh, any, the, the next one we're going to have up here is the right location. Uh, <clears throat> there is a little humor on this one. There is a buccal version of buprenorphine, which you stick inside your mouth on the buccal side of the cheek. And then they have a patient information sheet that comes in a little booklet. And on there, there's the profile of a woman with a patch right here. 11 o'clock at night, the phone rings. It's the guy's wife. He's an attorney, right, and uh, with an MBA and a CPA. And I bring that up for a reason. I would assume that those people would read. And uh, she said, his friends are laughing at her. We just got back from dinner. Why is he running around with duct tape on his cheek? So you got to breathe deeply. Remember, you're dealing with people that aren't medication-oriented but have, uh, I want to say, an ego. So I said, can you get the bottle for me, the little package? Yes. I said, what did I write down? It said, um, place one buccal film patch on the inside of the mouth. Hold in place for 15 minutes. No beverages for 45 minutes thereafter. For pain, lock up, narcotic. May cause drowsiness and dizziness. Driving caution, 60 equal 30-day supply. I said, excellent. She says, mm-hmm, honey, come here. So and I even went to the side and gave a sunny side up, you know, the yellow side. But anyway, and that's it. So the, that can happen. So I, I would in, encourage reviewing the meds with the patient if you're using something like that so they know about the right location. Okay. Yeah, uh, Dr. again, going to diagnosis, patient has sciatica, and okay, that's obvious what a sciatica problem is, and so they're visiting uh, the pain center and getting Boku interventional uh, procedures, lots and lots of um, interventional epidurals, transdurals, whatever. And then you examine the patient and find that they have a piriformis syndrome, also known as the false L5S1 syndrome. So again, it goes back to something I said before. The diagnosis the patient walks in with, even if given by a physician, 
may not be necessarily so. It doesn't mean the physician was bad. It means that people tend to look through monocular vision at what their specialty is and what that would mean for the diagnosis. So you've got to think a little bit out of the box. Okay. Any comments? Anything that's happened to you in your practice that you want to share with us? Is there a set of arms going up right here? Okay. In terms of, this is loud, um, the right location, I'm an inpatient side of things, and in a patient that was using her fentanyl patch on her lower calf, and in that case, she had relatively good pain management. I wasn't going to adjust her fentanyl patch, but, you know, obviously counseling her that it's not recommended going over the locations where you're supposed to apply it, and in her case, she said no, she didn't want it on her, her torso or upper arms, but... So, you know, I, well, lower calf's not recommended, but that would be okay. But if the situation were a little different and she were putting it maybe on her inner thigh, closer to her groin, that could have increased absorption, which really could have safety issues. So, you know, I didn't feel comfortable with the, the lower calf. It's definitely important to talk about where they're putting their patches and, you know, if it could have any safety implications. Absolutely. Very, very good point. Because if she doesn't walk, she's not going to have, you know, if she, her pain is in her back, she sits down all day, you know, lack of blood flow, movement, it slows down if you're not using that. Uh, she may not be getting benefit or uh, maximal benefit from that patch. Very good point. Thank you. Anyone else on that? Then Bob? Okay, doctor, I would like to move down to the right administration specifics since we've kind of covered the yeah. anatomic yeah. location. Yeah. Be as specific as you can in your directions. Many of you raised your hand that you use EPIC. What's wrong with EPIC when you're trying to, uh, e when I'm going to say email a prescription, not email, I guess if you're going to email a prescription to their pharmacy is you're limited by the number of characters you can put in. Correct? Okay. When you've got that, avoid that. Because if I want something on a label, I'm not going to stretch it down. So when I'm dealing with <coughs> opioids, or NSAIDs. If it's opioids, it's going to say narcotic, because they don't know the term opioid, comma, lock up, comma, driving cautions, comma, may cause drowsiness and dizziness. And then I'll put the number down, 120, for example, equal 30 days. There's no guesswork there. All right, that, that, that's an important issue. On NSAIDs, this, critical, it should say, or what I put down, is stop Former NSAID use. They don't know what an NSAID is. In parentheses, consult with pharmacists. No ibuprofen, ketoprofen, or naproxen, close parentheses. And also they have multiple NSAIDs and they're taking them at home. And they don't know that uh, relafin, the old relaf, is an NSAID. And they take that on top and you're wondering why they're bleeding. So as much information as you can give a patient to negotiate their life effectively on a simple little label. So when they go home, they've got as much there because they remember 25% maybe of what you said in the office. In their, so as much as you can do. That's what I wanted to say about uh, administration specifics. Any comments? Yes. So 
I'm, I'm actually primary care. So two things I do with my patients because I work in geriatrics. One, I am obsessed with constantly writing what we've discussed and any changes in medications, especially timing. The other thing is on the label, I'll actually find that they think they understand the administration of something like levothyroxine, and then I, it is better if I make sure on the label it says take your levothyroxine one to two hours before your first meal, or if the patient prefers to take it and to actually write it on there. Right. And with the blue scripts, like we can't e-scribe any narcotics in the office. They have to be handwritten. And so for us, there's, I haven't managed to find enough room to put in the 120 and 30 days because the state wants us to put the number and then written and fill on dates and things like that. But I'll definitely see if I can fit it in. No, that, it, that what Dr. Barkin said is true, you know, using EPIC. We, at UNC, we can't write, there are no prescriptions on camp, on in the university, no prescription pads. Everything's got to be done through EPIC. And you have that little free thing there, but they only allow 128 characters. So what Dr. Barkin puts on his prescriptions, he can write a prescription at Rush. Okay, I can't write there, and probably many of you don't have prescription pads if you're dealing with that sort of issue. So anyway, let's. Anybody else have anything to say about that? Because yes, ma'am. Just one thing to say about those of us stuck with Epic. There's other places in the system where you can customize instructions that you want given to the patient and then print them. Yeah, you can put it yeah. on the after visit summary. The problem is they read it and throw it out. Mm. <laughs> okay. Better than nothing. <laughs> Incidentally, on the Epic, I use Epic, but I will actually type out all the prescriptions on Epic and then hit the print button. You can do that on there, yeah. and then they can print it. So I want them to walk out with it in their hand. Another reason to walk out with it in their hand is if you're writing a Schedule II opioid and they go to the pharmacy and, you know, patients are, they're not as bright as you are in, in that area. And you wrote a prescription for 120 and the pharmacy tech comes up and says, we have 60, would you like them? And what is the patient going to say? No. And then the patient says, well, if they only have 60, I can come back. No, you can't come back on a Schedule two, and it always happens on what day of the week? Saturday, okay, when no one's around. So you've got to inform the patient. If they don't have it in full, find, have them find you a pharmacy that does have it in full. Just a moment. I'll be right there. Hi. I just want to thank you so much. I enjoy your lecture very much, both of you. Um, I'm a pharmacist. Actually, I I met with a patient taking the Sensroid for more than 20 years. He said to me he he doesn't eat, but he take it with his coffee and milk. This patient, I I explained to him he cannot drink milk either. He cannot drink milk or any food. Uh, he lost 25 pounds in a period of six months, and his dose dropped. Yeah. So it's not only food, milk, too. You cannot take it with the Sensroid. That's correct. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next one we have is the right time, the right hours. Unfortunately, I'm going to engage some science here. Is that okay? All right. Every drug has a peak. So when you're looking at a long-acting opioid, for example, it'll say it peaks four to six hours after you take it. What can you do with that clinical information? 
Ask the patient, what time of the day do you want the most pain relief? Or what time of the day is the pain most intense? And they, they generally know. And they'll say, you know, 12 noon and I, I need it around noon and I need it before I go to bed. So dose it four hours before that peak at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. So it peaks in the serum when you want it. Make sense? So instead of saying take every 12 hours, it could peak at a time of the day where it doesn't work, and then they come back in the office and say, this isn't working. And they like that, So especially when you tell them why you're asking that question. So they look at the peak, and then when they need the time, and then go back by that peak. Very good. Thank you, Bob. Uh, another a different problem, but with the same issue that Bob's talking about, is when you have patients with... Um, problems that are significant but that occur for minutes. For instance, breakthrough pain in cancer, breakthrough pain in non-cancer pain, or vertigo. Patients who will turn their head and develop vertigo, which will last maybe 15, 20 minutes, and they're really nauseated, they can't move. So most people, most patients will say, oh, you know, I get that breakthrough pain, I'll take you know, my instant release morphine. Well, is that a good idea? How long does it take instant release morphine to work? By the time it's working, the pain is gone. Okay, naturally. And the same with vertigo. Oh, I'll take my meclizine as soon as I get vertigo. So what you want to do, or might want to think about anyway, for vertigo, I would give patients a uh, prophylactic meclizine type of uh, period. For instance, 12 and a half to 25. Each tablet is 25. You can get 12 and a half and uh, make it Q6 or eight hours to prevent the vertigo. Also, and this is a topic that a lot of people like to shy away from, is the only drugs really that will help true breakthrough pain are the TERFs, okay? Uh, break the fentanyls, okay? The acute fentanyls like Lozondo, which is intranasal, and uh, then there's a buckle. They're fast. They'll, they'll, operate in minutes, and that allows them to actually be effective during the patient's breakthrough pain. In terms of headache, you can have things like uh, benign exertional headache. When I work out, I get a terrible headache for two hours afterwards. And you have other, you have cough headache, benign cough headache, which is more difficult to deal with. But you also have headache associated with sexual activity and so on. And for that, what you want to use is preventative, prophylactic, indomethacin 75 milligrams SR, one to two hours prior to exercise or sexual activity. So you want to try, you want to understand the pain well enough to know if it's acute or they may have chronic and acute pain. So you've got to deal with both differently. And same with headache. Yes. Uh, taking your medication at the right time is so important. I had an older gentleman who said he couldn't sleep at night. I asked him to come back in a week's time and bring all his medications. And sure enough, we went through the whole uh, bottle. Some of them he'd been taking for 10, 15 years. No clue what he was taking it for. And he was taking his Lasix at dinner time, and that was keeping him up all night. I didn't want to write anything for his sleep till I went through the medication. So we had to again tell him to take it early in the day so he doesn't yeah. have to stay up. Yeah. I think the main point you're making and that 
Bob and everybody's talking about is uh, while there are no generic patients, you know, there are no generic doctors either. Our job really is to write down as much as possible for the patient, particularly the elderly, as you noted, so they know exactly in writing that they can take with them what was said, which is why, you know, with Epic, I'll do a really extensive dictation for the patient going through that stuff. But patients read it, and I tell them how to wean up exactly on the drug because they're not looking at the actual um, report that I dictate. So the issue is you want to write as much as you can because the patients really need it. And you tell the patient, don't throw this out. And you, <laughs> you write big letters on the top and paid pen. Don't throw this out. Keep it. And if they have their family member with it, you know, with them, you know, your, for instance, the wife or your spouse or anyone else, you want them to know that they can't do that. Okay. Uh, next one, we're going to go to write uh, dosage forms. Some of your opioids come in the same milligram strength, but one is long-acting, one is short-acting. You may use them together. You may say take one long-acting 15 milligram of this morphine at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., and then 15 milligrams immediate release as needed for breakthrough pain from the long-acting opioids. Please put those words on the prescription. And I always say this is a long-acting opioid. They don't understand a morphine SR or ER or whatever or IR. Put down, this is a long-acting opioid. This is the short-acting opioid, so, so that there's no confusion there. So when they go to see their doctor, what are you taking? I'm taking morphine's 15 milligram. <laughs> they forgot to tell them one is long-acting, one is short-acting. Any comments on that one? Yes? On the computer in the hospital, when the nurses do the med rec, they always they put in metaprolol. It comes to a low presser. And the patients, you know, comes Q-Day, BID. I mean, they don't know. So you got to really be careful. Very good point. Very good. Okay. Uh, any comments, Doctor? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, the right complete metabolic profile we talked about, very important, right, pr- right monitoring pr- parameters. Every single medication you prescribe has in their package insert right monitoring parameters. Who's doing the monitoring? Patient's going to see you in 30 days. Who's doing it? Do they have a blood pressure cuff at home? Do they know if, uh, what, what are they supposed to look for? Do they know the word edema or swelling? Do they understand that? So I like to ask them. I tell them what to look for, and I'll, I'll snip it out, or I'll, I'll get them a package insert and tell the pharmacist to go over it, and then we have them call us in three to five days, and the drug reaches steady state to tell us if any of those things are occurring or not occurring. And that's all we want to know, is it or is it not working? Because when you first start a drug, a new drug, there's a honeymoon period where the patient gets used to the medication, and they get familiar with it, and then they know what to expect. Side effects somewhat diminish, so by that time it's steady state, you're able to negotiate life a little bit more effectively, but they know what to look for in monitoring. So very often, laws, some government agency or whatever, you've got a law case, and they're saying, well, who's monitoring? Here's the package insert. That's what they see in court. They hold it up. Who's monitoring the patient? And you tell them the patient has been taught how to monitor and what to look for. Any comments, doctor? Yeah, being taught is one thing. Writing it down in your chart that I've instructed the patient to do this, to go to the nearest uh, CVS daily, stick their arm in a machine, and get a blood pressure. That is important. Uh, another thing that's in- important is, as you all know, don't start 
two drugs or more at the same time. One drug, titrate them up, then wait a couple of days, titrate the second drug. Easy stuff, you all know this, but some people forget. And the patients say, you know, I don't want to wait three weeks to start this drug. I'm going to start them all now. And so they get a, a side effect, and you're sitting there scratching your head going, I don't know what this is from. So we have to stop all the drugs. And you have to wean if it's an opioid, and you have to do whatever you have to do, and then start again, one at a time. Okay, right information. The patient was given a prescription for gabapentinoids, which one it is or what form it is, and told how to use it and everything else. You know, they all go to Dr. Google, right? So I always say, don't, don't, conf don't mix up. Dr. J's MD degree with Dr. Google, okay? There's a little difference. And then they look it up. And then you get the call. I don't have seizures. Why the heck did you prescribe this for me? So they have to have information to show that meds that are classified as one may have multiple uses underneath, and you're picking that out and showing it to them. So that's the, that, that right information on why they're using it and that it can be used for various other uh, things is important. Same thing with uh, some antidepressants, duloxetine. It's got five indications. So you're telling the patient, no, you don't have depression. We're not treating anxiety. This isn't for fibromyalgia, and this isn't for acute or chronic pain. It is for your diabetic neuropathy so that they don't understand that it, it, you're prescribing it for depression. So you've got to let them know that. Multiple indications from one medication can, can, and, and patient understanding. Yeah, under the, by the same token, you can go on to write patient and advocate understanding. When I see a patient after the examination in history, the first thing I say is, look, I'm not here to do something to you. I'm here to do something with you. Okay, so you need to understand what your problem is. And let me explain it again, slowly. And dictate, I dictate it too while we're talking. And you need to help me help you. Okay, most patients even though they may seem docile and say, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do whatever you say, doctor. You, I try to incorporate their willingness to work with me, not an ex make it very explicit that I'm not here to do anything to them. They must be willing to do whatever is necessary to help themselves. And that's, I think, a really important point because patients are used to being told and they come into my office and say, well, my doctor said this, so that's what I did, and now look what happened. So you really need to explain in as nauseating detail as the patient can tolerate and understand. And then you need to incorporate their desire to get better and say, this is how I'm going to help you. Give them part of the responsibility, if not the majority of the responsibility, of getting better because you're not there to do anything to them. You're there to help them get better. Okay, next one is right dispensing. I'm just a little old urban druggist myself, so I, I have a, a, a very strong spot in my heart for pharmacists. And they're the last ones that can prevent a problem from engaging. So very often on the prescription for right dispensing, my colleagues and I write down RPH, registered pharmacist, to consult with patient, please, close parentheses. And most of the time when I ask the patient, they say, the pharmacist doesn't have time, and I should call him back. And I said, fine, then do it, okay? And many of the patients don't, and I say, read that sheet of paper that comes with your meds. 
patient information. Do not throw that out. Please read it so that you understand it. And uh, that, that, that's an important issue because sometimes the patients, what we talked about before with medications that have multiple uses, won't read it. They'll look at this when it starts out, this is an antidepressant, and put, I'm not going to take it. So that when you see them in 30 days, they said they didn't use the patient because I'm not depressed. That's an antidepressant. So that's an important issue. Any comments on dispensing from any of our pharmacists? Okay. Uh, next one is the right communication. I always have said, stop talking to your patients. It's your waste of time. Talk with them. Stop hearing them and start listening to them. More often than not, they will address all of your needs that you have and questions by that good communication. And it's not only communicating with them, it's communicating who is with them. That's why I like spouses or caregivers to come with the patient. Uh, a very important issue in communication so that they fully understand what they're doing, why they're there, uh, what to expect, what not to expect, and the complaints that they have. Dr. J. Nope, that's what I talked about before. Okay. Anybody have any comments? Please. Okay. Let's move ahead to... Right the generic equivalent. Uh, yeah. The patient was uh, prescribed um, a, uh, a buccal patch of buprenorphine. Their pharmacist called the attending who wrote the prescription and said it is not on their PBM list that you can use this other suboxone, this, uh, suboxone derivative or suboxone, is that all right? He didn't know there was a difference. He's not an addictionologist, and I don't call it ignorance. He just didn't have the information. He trusted the pharmacist, said it's the same thing, just use it. Well, what happens now? Now you've got a drug that is used for chemical dependency in the patient's chart and in their record, and it's on the PDM now. So the next physician that they see or the next, next prescriber that they saw after that looked on the chart and said, I don't want to bother with this. I've got another addict in my office. And, and, and put the brakes on the interaction there. All from the wrong, I want to say, the wrong generic equivalent. Doctor? Uh, basically what Bob had said earlier, the FDA approves generic drugs. Uh, you used to have a 100 milligram Elevil was 100 milligram Elevil. Now it can go down to 80 milligrams and up to 125 milligrams, which is why it's imperative that, you know, some patients have very narrow therapeutic indices. You give them 5 milligrams more, they're going to abreact and have a problem with the medication. So you want to be very careful. And what happens every month? The pharmacists know when you run out of a drug, they do, you know, they do a sale and they see who's going to sell it cheapest. So they may have a different generic drug every month, and the patient needs that drug every month, so that patient may be getting a different generic drug with a different true amount of medication in there. So you want to be very careful. And one of the problems is they've sold out on the myelin drug, and now they've got another uh, generic drug, and the patient may have a problem if it's on the higher side rather than on the side they're used to taking. So you want to, if that happens, inquire to the pharmacist, you know, whose generic are you selling this year or this month? Yes, sir. Behind you, Bob. Quick question. So, so what you're saying, I'm getting an impression, and I, I, my patients um, inferred this to me, but I didn't quite believe them, but now I'm beginning to 
there is definitely a difference in the bioavailability between generics that have been approved by the government. Not, it's not so much bioavailability, it's the amount of drug. The FDA rule is if for a generic for a 100 milligram Elevil tablet, the generics can run from 80 milligrams to 125 milligrams and still be called a 100 milligram tablet. So your patient may be getting low-balled or high-balled, and they did fine on 100, and you're sitting there questioning, uh, how come all of a sudden things are different? That's something you need to, that's one of the things they don't tell you about generic drugs, because they're all wonderful. They're all the same. I will, back in the early 80s, the first generic drug, anybody know what that was? It was Dilantin. And before that, they had... uh, Park Davis Dilantin capsules, and we'd used that for seizures, 300 milligrams QHS at night, okay? And the bioavailability was good enough, they'd build it up fine. And so everybody said, first generic drug, the government said, you, we want doctors to use this, it's cheaper. So all of us said, okay, fine, first generic drug, we used it, and within two weeks, patients were all having seizures in the afternoon because they didn't have the same pharmacotherapeutic effect as the Dilantin capsules. So we had to write a script for specific Dilantin capsules from Park Davis. So again, that was the first generic and it was a disaster. And things have not really gotten better. Uh, Question here, Bob. Wait, hold on one sec. I want to hear that so everybody can hear you. So in my opinion, as a pharmacist, things have gotten worse with generics because now they're made China, India, Vietnam. I mean, every day I look at a tablet that has come in, a bottle that in the hospital, now you don't even know who the manufacturer is. And when you go to the FDA website, like I looked, there's probably 50 places in India that drugs come from, and there's two FDA guys. Who knows when they go there to check? So you really, you have no clue what you're getting. And so when your patients tell you they're not getting pain relief, their blood pressures are goofy, stomach upset, you have no clue what they're putting in, and it's a really a sad state. I mean, because they're paying a ton of money for stuff. I mean, the whole thing is, it, it's crazy now, really out there. Um, well, nobody knows what they're getting, in my opinion. Well, I would agree with you, and I thank you. But the issue becomes the patient calls you, and the first thing that's on your mind is, oh, the patient isn't taking the medication correctly. Okay, because you wrote a script for amitriptyline 100 milligrams, and that's what you expected them to get. But because of this generic, this is not necessarily what's happening. So the first thing that happens when the patient has a problem is, oh, patient messed up, and it's not necessarily so. So you need to really question the patient and then talk, about, talk to the pharmacist about the drug. Maybe I had one occasion where that happened, and he said, oh, it's the first time we've used this generic. And I said, well, I hope it's the last time, because I'm sending this patient to another pharmacy. 
Yeah. I was yeah. just wondering uh, what uh, drugs we use in chronic pain management um, that do have a narrow therapeutic window that we should be aware of um, and any sort of practical pitfalls to be aware of with using them? Yeah, well, two of the issues. There's a narrow therapeutic index of some drugs and subdrug effects, but I was really, when I made that statement before, I was referring to the fact that many patients have a narrow therapeutic ability to tolerate a drug. Okay, now, there is something called Sweets Cocktail, which most people don't know about. Basically, that's my uh, Hail Mary pass for complex, which is exactly 75 milligrams of amitriptyline exactly at night with one milligram of stelazine, TID. But it's so narrow, if it's not exactly that, it doesn't work. Now, but what I was referring to is a patient that you say, uh, I'm going to give you 50 milligrams of uh, morphine, and they're getting some other form of generic morphine because it's an IR formulation, and it may be up or down, and they can't tolerate it, or it doesn't help them. And that's what I meant by the therapeutic index of the patient. Okay, because their therapeutic index really is at the uh, behest of the med they take, and the med they take may change by different generics. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? Thank you. Other, other than anticonvulsants, uh, and there's uh, that have uh, serum levels that are measured, or antidepressants like nortriptyline, which has a therapeutic window. Um, there, and there's uh, carbamazepine and there's lithium. Those may be used in the management of, uh, of some pain states, but th- that's where a generic drug really gives you a problem. Look what's just happened two weeks ago on Valsartan when everything is withdrawn, period, of accidents that happened. So uh, we're looking at interaction. Uh, I will just b- uh, briefly say this. Uh, if a drug, there are some of the Pomoras which have to be taken on an empty stomach, the patients don't know what an empty stomach is. So we always say two hours before a meal or one hour after a meal is an empty stomach. Put that on the label because uh, in the case that I know of, there was no mention. The patient had no idea what an empty stomach was and just took it and got no relief whatsoever. Uh, have them tell you about all the herbal meds they're on. I like to use the word phytopharmaceuticals because they don't know what it means. And then you can say it's medications that were derived from plants. And then I use a little humor. I'll say uh, mor- morphine, for example, and then I'll go into you know, the, the other stuff that came. Poppies make morphine. You know, and they go, oh, okay, they also make heroin, but we won't go into that. And uh, so that they understand that they're not benign. And you all know what B9 means? That's what happens after you B8, you B9. So use a little humor with them so that they laugh at it, and then they understand. Remember, there's a host of them that can cause bleeding. Garlic, ginger, concoba, feverfew, and ginseng can all cause bleeding. And then when they're on an NSAID and you tell them to watch for any discoloration in their urine, aside from pyridium, for God's sakes, but discoloration in their urine for blood, they can get confused with it. So... Dr. J, anything you want to yeah, add there? Yeah, just very quickly uh, to reinforce the fact that some of that may be uh, cultural, too. Uh, when I went to uh, China several times at the behest of Pfizer when I took a sabbatical and worked in pharma, the issue was uh, when you get to, to the docks in China, they don't know and will not prevent their patients from taking herbal remedies. 
They don't want to know. They don't even ask. And when I ask, well, we want to do, we at Pfizer want to do a placebo-controlled trial, they say, we don't do that either because uh, patients are taking whatever they want plus what we give them. So you want to be careful what they're taking, the list that Dr. Barkin noted that can cause bleeding. Garlic, how many people do that? You can get it over the counter at Walgreens. Okay, fever few. Okay, uh, the botanicals that people take for migraine can be problematic. Okay. Now we've so, got hemp and the cannabinoids, which adds issues yeah. to it and everything else. I said natural doesn't mean perfect. It means imperfect because we don't know what's in the container. Remember the melatonin study they did some years back? They took melatonin from all the chain stores and all of these other private stores, and they did an assay on it. Some had zero melatonin, and some had 200% more than was stated on the container. So there's not a lot of, I want to say, therapeutic control over that. Next one, well, if we can, we talked about schedules. Make the schedules, I want to say, okay for the patient. So what I mean, acceptable to the patient. So if you want to write down, and there happens to be, Three eight-hour drugs, you want to say six, two, and ten. Next one, eight, four, and twelve. Nine, one, and five. So they have a handle on it and not to condense them. Um, the right analysis of challenges. That that's, means a lot to me. You have patients that are coming into your practice that are there with caregivers. Patients that may be, have memory issues, pre-Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's. Patients that don't speak the same language you have. Patients that have hearing impairments. So, and, and caregivers that may or may not speak the same language, or it's, I understand a little bit of English. So if you can get a, a most hospitals have a line that you can call in to get a translator. But analysis, what, what are their physical disabilities emotional disability, or are they, are they disabled completely when you prescribe? Is this going to worsen anything that they're already on? Things of that nature. Patients that have to stray cat themselves or have to have, or they, or they have a, some type of uh, uh, bag uh, close to them for, um, we're going to say, for uh, restructuring of their colon or something of that nature, and they don't, they don't talk about it, so you have to ask about that. Very important, the physical and emotional challenges they have that can cause disability. Doctor? I'm fine. Okay. Anybody want to add anything to that? Okay. Uh, the right to document allergies and or side effects. Sometimes patients, there are patients that have an agenda. And there isn't anybody in the pain business that hasn't had this happen to them. Oh, doctor, I'm allergic to codeine, morphine, uh, I'm allergic to buprenorphine, I'm allergic, and they're going right there, I'm an allergy to and but you know what? I have no allergies to oxycodone, hydrocodone, or hydromorphone. And, oh, I can't use that fentanyl patch, it always falls off. Okay, now, that, that, that's an important issue. Then they're taking you down the road. And there isn't anybody that hasn't experienced this in the pain business already. Then the other thing we're gonna talk about is true allergies, very important. You've had patients that you've seen in your practice that are in the hospital and they have little microchips and bracelets that they wear, allergy to morphine. And when you talk to the patient, you find out it wasn't allergy, it was a side effect. Constipation. 
So discriminate the allergy, maybe if you can, where it happened, especially something like Stevens-Johnson or something like that. But when they say allergies, get all the specifics you can. And if it's not an allergy, put in your notes. This was not an allergy. It was an iatrogenic event, uh, like a uh, side effect from the medication, and, ha and has resolved and can be resolved. Yeah, That's an important thing. Patients remember side effects. Okay, and they'll, they'll be very florid in their descriptions, so let them talk with them about it. Yeah, one important point is you'll see patients, for instance, that are lactose intolerant or intolerant to other types of things that are truly, they may have an allergic reaction. Uh, you've got to check the fillers of the medications you prescribe. A lot of drugs, including opioids, are filled. You know, the, the pill is not just the opioid. There's a filler right. in it. And it might be lactose. It might be another drug that they're intolerant to. So you want to be very careful. Okay. Choose a dosage form that doesn't have it in there. Maybe a, 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 a patch, if that's possible, or a film patch, or an agent that says lactose-free. Okay. Anybody have any other comments there? Yes. Um, my question is uh, back to the right location. Uh, I do um, pain management, uh, both medication and some limited interventional stuff. But I also uh, work at a um, suboxone facility where the other, myself, I'm not the only physician there, and a series of physicians, we work there uh, working with uh, younger patients, usually drug addicts. Then I hear the government has a problem with standalone suboxone clinics. Even if the physicians working there don't have an ownership interest in them, I don't understand the reasoning behind that. Well, that makes two of us. Basically, the rule when I got my ex, uh, yeah, of course you need to have an ex uh, DEA uh, license to be able to utilize suboxone. And at that point, that was three years ago for me, and um, I never had a problem except there are state and jurisdictional issues that aren't necessarily federal, okay? And so you may want to verify exactly who has a problem with that, okay? I, I would think in Florida you might find some issues that are more state-related than federal. Okay? Alabama, there you go. All right, let's move ahead because we've got very little time left and we want to make sure. And Dr. Barkin is going to move ahead first. Pharmacokinetic considerations for geriatric patients. Yeah, for geriatric uh, patients, remember I told you to take a look at that package insert before you start prescribing and see what it says about the elderly. And then for uh, some patients, some medications have not been used in the patients you're seeing. I have a lot of patients in my practice that are in their 70s. I've got a whole host of them that are in their high 90s, and they're completely with the program. So you have to tailor for that group. And if you're looking at medications that haven't been used in the elderly or haven't had anything or there's no experience then, and this is your drug of choice, go low, stay low, and don't ramp it up too high. Or, and you tell them because benefits come first, therapeutic benefits are already delayed. But take a look at their, uh, the, the problems they have with the, uh, absorption and bowel dysmotility. To constipation is a very important issue to the elderly. 
You know, that's the first thing they ask me. Is it going to cause sexual dysfunction or bowel dysfunction? You know, I'm kidding on this. I'm the first one. But bowel dysfunction, because, you know, I don't want to be constipated. I have too many problems with this already. Where is it distributed to? What type of tissues? Is it lipophilic or is it hydrophilic? Where is it going? Is it going to be stored in a lipophilic storage site in their body and then be released later? Okay, the metabolism, important. We're going to look at that in a minute. If you have patients that have genetic polymorphism or they've got cytochrome system issues that they want to talk about, try to use drugs that have phase two metabolism. There's quite a few out. Uh, uh, There's opioids that are out that have phase two metabolism associated with it. So that's an important issue, and especially if they have active metabolites. Not all metabolites are active as were the parents. Remember meperidine? Demerol, it had a metabolite called normiperidine, which was a neurotoxin, just like we have with morphine. We've got morphine 3, which is neurotoxic, but it wasn't reversible by naloxone. So you have to understand what the metabolites are and if they're active or inactive and how they will be processed in that elderly patient who has distribution problems, little muscle mass, lots of fat. I have patients that weigh over 420 pounds, and I'm the one that goes out to the waiting room and brings them in in their wheelchair. And they got to go on carpeting. Can I ask my, my nurse practitioner to do it or my tech? No, I'll do it because right? I'm strong enough to do it down there and we don't have volunteers to do it because a lot of them are in their late 70s and can't negotiate it. So you know that they're going to have a lot of, uh, I'm going to say, fat tissue. Fat is a storage site okay, for meds. Take a look at their excretion. Their creatinine clearance, I cannot stress that enough. And with age, what you have is a decrease in excretion. You have a decrease in renal clearance. What is that going to give you? Side effects and adverse effects of, of the metabolites in the active drug. So be careful with that. I just found out that uh, a few years ago that I had one functioning kidney. I found that out when I was 65 years old. I never knew that. How did I know it? I had a total body MRI. So, and I, he says, you got a kidney the size of a walnut, and it's not working. So, and I found that out late in life. And I'm an old guy. I'm 78. So, I mean, for me to get that at 65, it was something for me to remember. Compliance. Consider diminished compliance with polypharmacy. I don't want to take any more meds anymore. All right? Stuff costs me too much. Instead of four times a day, I'm going to take it twice a day. Okay? And And I'm going to take this one on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'm going to take this one on Tuesday and Thursday. Or I'm only going to take drugs on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday because I don't want to mess up my weekend. All right? So uh, compliance is a major issue with them. All right? Uh, Then also here, the interaction of multiple drugs. We talked about that. You have hepatic induction. Induction, simple word. The liver chews it up. So what do you have? Poor effect. Then there's hepatic inhibition. What are you going to have? Supra-therapeutic effect. All right. And then there is drugs that compete for the same binding sites, and you had issues there. So that's uh, uh, an, another set of circumstances that can occur. All right. And then, of course, plasma protein binding. Many of my elderly patients have low serum albumin, low uh, acid uh, glycoprotein, and the drugs are going to be bound to, are going to have less effect. So highly bound drugs won't be bound. When you're bound, you're inactive. Think of putting a drug in FLR, full leather restraints. Okay? So when it, there's no protein binding, no alpha-1 acid glycoprotein, you have more free drug available. Okay. I should point out that these uh, were written and published by Dr. Barkin. My wife's first husband. Okay. In any event... Then we take a look at this. This is from another article we wrote. 
which is, uh, when I, this is what it's uh, approximate equal analgesic. Remember what I've been saying, and as Dr. J has been saying, when you're using equal analgesic charts, it's a place to begin but not end and get that patient back for titration. 40% of the time you're too low, 40% of the time you're too high, 20% of the time you're on the mark. If you've got a thought about it, cut your dose in half. Half of it is scheduled, half of it is used for PRN for breakthrough. And if you can use half as long-acting and the other half as short-acting, try that so then you don't overdose the patient. But the, these are these conversions that we've, that we've been using for years. Dependerol, we had 150 milligrams or more. We discussed that in another session. Okay, you're going to get uh, uh, tramadol will be available uh, shortly in an injectable dosage form. It's in, available injectably all over the world. It's in the United States now, and they've passed on that. So be careful with this, very careful, all right? And uh, with methadone, it's got variable drug issues involved. I always start the lowest possible dose I can because, remember, it peaks between day three and day five. So you can't be very vigorous with it. Okay, you're, you're not a methadone maintenance program. You're using it for pain. And on that subject, please, it has to be on the label for severe pain. All right, you've got to do that. Because there's dosage forms that can only be used for patients that are in programs, and those are diskettes and liquid. Uh, that's not available for pain management. Just one comment for me regarding the equi-analgesic charts. Uh, one of the things I have not heard anybody mention in this pain week is opioid rotation. Okay, when you have a patient that is not doing well on a particular opioid and is, their amount is climbing, you may want to use a reasonable uh, equi-analgesic chart, but it's better just to cut by two-thirds when you're going to start a new drug. And, you know, you, you, there are patients on uh, 100 milligrams here, and you're going to change them to another drug, start them at about 30 milligrams, and then work up. But you don't need to use an equianalgesic chart to know that. And you know that the CDC guideline chart is imperfect. I think you've figured this out already. That's already we, old material. So yeah. be cautious in using any of these charts. This is one I put together. I, I can't remember how far back it was. But it's the cytochrome systems that the drugs undergo. Remember I said there's phase 2 metabolism drugs, and you've got some phase 2 metabolism drugs up there to look at. And this goes all the way down to remifentanil and that. Uh, as far as tepentadol goes, 85% of it uses phase 2 metabolism. Oxymorphone uses phase 2 metabolism exclusively. Its metabolites are noroxymorphone and uh, sometimes with a trace amount of oxycodone. It doesn't come from the drug. It comes from its manufacturing process. So if you're doing urine drug tests, don't be appalled when the patient on oxymorphone has a trace of oxycodone. The other flip side is oxycodone does go to the liver and comes out as an active metabolite in the uh, oxymorphone. And when we take a look further up, we can see buprenorphine, not a major issue at all with its metabolite, and, under, and part of it undergoes phase two metabolism. Um, fentanyl, on, by cytochrome 3A4, there is a norfentanyl, which is its uh, metabolite. Hydrocodone goes to the liver, comes out as hydromorphone. 
So remember when you're doing your drug test to look for it or if anybody else is looking at it for you. Levorfenol might be coming back. This used to be called levodromeran. It undergoes, it underwent phase two metabolism. Uh, we talked about meperidine. Methadone has a whole host of cytochrome systems that it is uh, uh, negotiated by. Um, let's see uh, what else on here. I left propoxyphene on there even though the drug is no longer around in the United States. It may be used in other parts of the world. How many of you have patients that save their meds? They don't throw them out. Very important. I have a patient who calls it her armament. And her husband said he built a little shelf that comes out this far from the wall. And it goes all around the bathroom. And that's her armament. And there are drugs on that shelf from 1985. Okay? But she's not going to throw them out. Okay? So you have to put that on your label. Stop using, and I write it down at home, if, it's, if you're using an opiate, stop using all other narcotics, opioids, or uh, other analgesics for pain. Please call us to identify what you have and, or destroy them. It's not going to happen. Okay? So just thought I would share that with you. They still come back with the same comment. Uh, this on, any, any comment uh, on this on here? And that, that should, I think, fulfill our needs on this slide. Am I right? Yep. Okay. I'll stay around for a few minutes that you have uh, if there's any questions after the lecture. I want to thank you all for contributing your time here, both from Dr. Jay and myself. We enjoy lecturing to you, and we enjoy lecturing together, but we like to share information. Have a good day.